Um, on, one of our, on one of our family trips, we were able to go to Washington, D.C., uh, and down in that mall area, there is a place called the Bureau of Print Engraving and Printing, which is fun to go to. You get a chance to see uh, money getting printed. They talk to you about uh, the technology that is, that is used um, to, to, um, to create all of those bills, and you get to see um, the, uh, the, the, the guide who's taking you through that. You get to watch their face as people ask them for the one millionth time whether or not there are souvenirs available, you know, uh, free, freebies at the end of the, uh, of the tour as they kind of try to put on a smile and laugh at that. Um, but uh, I want to think a little bit about that idea this morning of, of what it takes uh, in order for uh, something to be real versus counterfeit this morning. Jude is going to, to take us through this. And uh, we're going to be in Jude uh, verses, um, we're going to be in Jude verses uh, 12 through 16 this morning. No, we're going to be in Jude 11 through 16 this morning. Be good if I knew which passage I was preaching from. Um, but when, when you're dealing with currency, maybe you guys have been in retail before, you know that there are a couple of tests that you put a bill through to see whether or not it's the real thing. You feel the paper, right? If it's rough, you, you know that's probably real because our, our bills are put together um, out of these various fibers and they feel rough. If you tilt the bill, um, you should uh, see something different happen in that lower right-hand corner, some colors change or some, an image change uh, slightly, you will see that. And then thirdly, if you hold a bill up into the light, you see some very special things that are unique to our currency, that watermark and the security thread. But this morning, we are going to hold false teachers up into the light through God's word. We're going to see what, uh, what false teachers look like, how to recognize and reject them, and then how to rely on Jesus, who is the real thing. So I'm going to read our passage uh, this morning. And then we will dive into preaching through it. Let's look verses uh, 11 through 16. It says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we are so grateful for this time and your word. Lord, we thank you for the strength that it offers us and the ways in which it teaches us wisdom. Lord, help us to see uh, in your word how to recognize uh, the counterfeit uh, in, our, in the world around us and even in the church world around us, God, so that we could rely and we could trust in you more fully. Thank you, Lord, for the ways in which this text is also going to show us more about Jesus. Lord, we look forward to seeing him in this text this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
All right. So the first thing that we need to do this morning is to learn how to recognize and reject the counterfeit. So let's look at these. There are going to be actually 11 different characteristics of false teachers that we're going to go through this morning. So if you're keeping score, there are 11 of them. So let's look starting in verse 11. It says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. We've got three different biblical comparisons um, that Jude makes here. So Cain is mentioned, the way of Cain. Um, so Jude is referring to a lot of things that his Jewish audience would, uh, would have remembered very easily just by uh, name-checking Cain. A lot of things spring to mind. Uh, so in Genesis chapter 4, we know that Cain murdered his brother, Abel, because his brother's sacrifice was accepted by God. And Cain was angry with God and envious of Abel. That's what motivated him um, to, uh, to kill his brother. And so these false teachers are destroying the brotherhood of believers. Their words and their actions are undermining the church itself. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians verse th- chapter 3, verse 17, he warns them that if a person destroys God's temple, which is the church, they themselves will be destroyed. That's a very stern warning, but these are the people that God has sent Jesus to redeem for himself. And so he's going to protect them just as I would protect my kids. So um, number one is that they, are just, they destroy the brotherhood. Number two, we see a second reference here in verse 11. It says they have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Now that's a very long story. and We're not going to get into all of, of what the Bible says about Balaam. But in Numbers chapter 22... Uh, we hear about this man, Balaam, and he is kind of a, a, a prophet, quote-unquote, for hire. Uh, you hire him if you, if you want uh, someone to be blessed or to be cursed. And um, this, this king of Moab sees all of the people of Israel, and they are kind of in the, in the, um, in the yard next to where, um, where Balak and his people are. And he hires uh, Balaam to come and to curse the people of Israel. And, of course, that's not end up... That's not what ends up happening, but, but Balaam is willing to pursue that for financial gain. So in this passage in Jude, he's talked about as a person who is willing to sell out others for financial gain. Now, in present day, we do see some of these kinds of people in our church environment uh, around us, or at least in, in places that call themselves churches. Uh, we think about uh, those who would ask you to plant a seed of faith into their ministry. And isn't it funny that the only way to plant a seed of faith is through money, uh, in, in their views. Uh, that's the only way to exercise faith is to open up your bank account and pour everything that you've got into them. Those people love money more than God's people. They are false teachers. That's a way to recognize them. A third thing uh, that we see about false teachers in this passage is that they create divisions and quarrel over leadership. There's another Bible story that is um, talked about here in verse 11. It says that they perished in Karah's rebellion. Again, there's a lot more to say about Karah than we have time to do this morning. But in Numbers 16, uh, ladies, aren't you glad you studied Numbers last year? Um, Karah is is a man who accuses Moses and Aaron of taking this opportunity as they are being led out of Egypt to gain power for themselves. 
So they're saying, you know what? You guys use this opportunity of, of God leading us out of Egypt as an opportunity for you to ascend in the ranks. It's a big power grab for you guys, isn't it? So they begin to try to pull together this sort of coup uh, among God's people to overthrow Moses and Aaron and, and, and put them in their place. And in reality, God is the one who has raised up Moses and Aaron. He's the one who has placed them in their place. And so they are resisting uh, the Lord. They were rebelling against him. God had actually given Korah and his, and his followers a special place among the people of Israel. Uh, he had made them Levites. And so they were in charge of taking care of the tabernacle. They were part of making sure that the worship of God uh, took place in an acceptable way uh, to the Lord. But they instead are not content with uh, the place that they have been given. And like those angels back in, in uh, verse 6 of Jude, they have left their place in order to get something else. So Moses sets up a challenge. He says, look, if, if you guys want to play that game, uh, we'll meet here tomorrow. And you guys fill your, your censers. And these are, these, are, um, these are kind of things that they would swing back and forth with incense and, and fire in them. Uh, that would be a part of uh, the Israelite worship. So you bring your censers, and we'll come before the Lord, and we'll see which one of us is standing uh, at the end of the day. And so Moses said, if the, if the Lord has sent me, the earth is going to open up, and it's going to swallow Korah and his followers. And so he says this to the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 16, verse 26. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all of their sins. And so that is exactly what happens. Fire comes out from the Lord and destroys all of those who are holding the censers, and everyone else is swallowed up um, as the earth opens and closes on them. And so it's a very dramatic way of the Lord demonstrating what, what is going to happen in judgment. So Moses' plea with the people here uh, to separate from these rebellious men is very much like the book of Jude, uh, where their, their condemnation, their judgment is being forecast. Jude is warning the church of the bad end that is going to come to all of those um, who, who are trying to assert themselves against the Lord and against the leadership that he has placed in his church. So he's telling the church, look, get away from them, get away from their tents, lest you be swept away with all of their sins. Now, the people of, of the church should not be allowing them to eat with them in fellowship, as if they are one and the same with the rest of the believers. And sometimes we, we come to understand as we read God's word that sometimes people are a part uh, of, of what the theologians call the visible church. That's all the people uh, in, in a particular room in a, in a church or those, all of the people that come to a particular church. And yet some of them do not belong to the Lord. Some of them don't belong to the Lord. Some, some people come uh, for other reasons. We've had guys who come to, this, you know, come to the church who are really just looking for a date. You know, we've got lots of nice ladies here, and I, and I can see why they come, but that is not why you should be uh, here. Um, you should be here seeking the Lord. Uh, so God calls us to step away from false teaching and to attach ourselves instead to God's word, which is why the second point of our four points is devotion. We hear God's word, and then we devote ourselves to what he says, and we cling to that truth. Now, some of us, on, on the flip side of that thing, uh, are, are not 
are not quite so, um, quite so open to others. They, are, they are instead see everybody as a false teacher. Uh, and they are really, really ready to, uh, to go and live in a van down by the river and, you know, by themselves um, because everybody else is doctrinally impure, right? You probably know uh, some of those people. Um, but we don't, want, we don't want to be like that. There are things that we can and should divide over, but not all, everything should we divide over. For example, I am, I'm reformed in my understanding of salvation. I'm very comfortable with that position and what the Bible teaches, that's, that's the position that we teach from in this church. Um, but I also have some dear friends that are, Armen- are Arminian and their understanding of salvation. And I think that they still know Jesus. I think they're going to be with me at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I really do. Um, and I see uh, the Lord at work in their lives. But there are other people that I know who are actually teaching People, they're actually teaching people false things. They're teaching them um, that, that homosexuality and other sins are acceptable to God. And I'm, 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 I'm frightened for some of those people that I know, honestly, because this is false teaching. Anytime we place ourselves in opposition to the clear teaching of God's word and we teach other people to do so, that's a very, very dangerous thing. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 6. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's a very stern warning to anyone who would teach other people to follow um, in a way that would dishonor God and would dishonor his word. And so this man, Karah, and his followers were willing to stand toe-to-toe with Moses Uh, and Aaron, and refused to repent of their sin. God judged them. And Jude is very clear as he he mentions Korah. He's saying that false teachers also are going to perish and be lost. So the next thing that Jude is going to do as he walks us through this uh, teaching about false teachers is he's going to stack a series of metaphors. This is one of the most beautiful parts of this book, Uh, I look forward to reading this series of images every time I read this book. It's just amazing how Jude crafts these images. He brings all of these, this natural imagery uh, together, and it is incredible. For those of you who are fans of hip-hop music, this is really the strength of that music, being able to take a lot of different things and weave them together into one cohesive uh, message. So Jude is awesome. He would be a great role model for you if you are a hip-hop artist. And I know how many of you, you guys are out there, you know, so... Um, all right, so the fourth thing that we learn about false teachers found in, in verse uh, 12 and 13 is that they love to hide in the church. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So these, these false teachers are dangerous in the same way that a reef would be that's just below the surface of the water. You're, imagine you're on a boat sailing somewhere and you, and you uh, hit this reef suddenly and it, and, uh, and it puts a huge hole in your boat that would threaten to sink you and destroy you and everyone who is on board. That is what um, Jude is saying these false teachers are like. He's saying they're like a reef that's just under the water that could uh, destroy you instantly because you're not paying attention and you don't realize that they are there. Now, another, uh, this, this Greek word can be translated in two different ways. So some of your Bibles, instead of the word uh, reef, 
you're going to see the word blemish. And that's another way to translate that. It's a translational option there. Uh, again, the idea is that, that they shouldn't be there, that they are uh, kind of below the surface and that they are in some way defiling these love feasts. So if you've got that translation, that's what that translator is trying to, is trying to bring out there. It's an acceptable translational option there. Um, so let's talk a little bit about love feasts. Uh, Nick alluded to them uh, the other week. And love feasts were kind of a, a combination of, uh, any, anybody ever been to an old covered dish dinner? Covered dish dinner, man, I missed a, a good covered dish dinner, I'll tell you what. Um, used to love those mashed potatoes and, and, uh, and fried chicken and, and uh, pound cake and all that good stuff. Um, I probably need to go eat something uh, after the service. <laughs> but... Um, it used to be a combination of a covered dish dinner and a communion meal all at the same time. And the idea was that everyone brought something to eat. Uh, so if, if you didn't have a lot of money, you were bringing a little. If you had a lot of money, uh, you were the one who was bringing racks of ribs for everybody, right? But everybody sat down and everybody could eat as much as they want. Because the idea was, look, we've all been saved. We are all debtors. We are all ones who owe Jesus our allegiance and none of us is better than any of the other ones. And so for a slave, man, this, this would probably be the best meal that they eat all week. Um, rich people would come in and, and help to provide for that. That's what they were supposed to do. So the idea of equality was there in these love feasts. And they were supposed to be an expression of the life of God and the life of these, of the life of these churches. But in this church, the false teachers were being treated like genuine believers even though they were teaching things that were false and publicly and flagrantly um, engaging in sin before the whole family believers. Now imagine, those of you who are parents, imagine what would happen if one of your kids was in flagrant rebellion right in front of you and in front of the whole family. What would happen if you just let that happen? If you just gave that kid a pass, you know, even though they were flagrantly rebelling in front of the entire family? What's the rest of the kids going to do? They're going to feel perfectly justified in doing the same thing next week when they don't get what they want, right? Um, and the, think about the result. What would the result be in the life of this church? It would shipwreck the, the faith of the entire church if, if they really believed that these things were right and good to do before the Lord. And so Jude is concerned about this. This is why he is trying to expose these false teachers. He also calls them something else. The second image he uses is that they are shepherds feeding themselves. And this, this uh, idea of shepherds feeding themselves is, is really one Greek word. It's the idea of shepherds shepherding themselves. They're doing this, this action of shepherding to themselves. They are um, taking all of the food for themselves. They are uh, enjoying all of the benefits of the church for themselves. And this may be an allusion to a passage in Ezekiel. It's an awesome passage in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 4. Ezekiel says this against the false shepherds of Israel. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness 
you have ruled them. And this is one of the passages, this is one of the parts of Jude that I, that I read, and, and we realize that these are leaders. These are not just people in the congregation who are doing this. These are people who are in some capacity, they are in, in a position of leadership within the church. People are looking to them to, to hear about um, what God expects of them and, and who Jesus is. They're looking to these people for answers. And yet, these people are using the flock for their own gain. In some way, they are using the people of God to, uh, to build their own kingdom. And they're leaving the flock sick and starving and wandering around looking for answers. These are the sheep that Jesus gave his life for. And so Jesus is not going to tolerate this in his church. That's why he's laying out this warning through Jude. And he's saying to the people, look, you need to separate yourselves from this kind of person. These shepherds who are feeding themselves. The next thing that we learn about false teachers, uh, the sixth thing, is um, that they promise refreshment and nourishment, but produce nothing of the spirit. They promise refreshment and nourishment, but they produce nothing of the spirit. Look at the next two images. They're very similar. It says that they are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. So the agrarian society in which scripture was written, these people would have relied on rain to come and help them with their crops. They would have depended on rain to come and make sure that their crops were growing so that they would have food for their families, which is why a, a, a god like Baal, a storm god, would have been in such prominence uh, in, the old, uh, in the Old Testament um, in, the, in, the, um, in the nations that were around Israel. So if they saw a cloud that was dark and it looked like it was fat with rain and it was just about to dump, uh, on them and on their crops, they would rejoice. They would be excited. And yet, just imagine that, that nice, fat rain cloud just passes on by. How, how sad and dejected they would be. That is a picture of these, of these false teachers who seem like they're going to produce spiritual fruit, and yet nothing happens. Seems like they're going to create nourishment, and nothing happens. The same thing is true with these fruitless trees um, that are uprooted and twice dead, Jude describes them as. It says, not only are they trees that are without fruit in late autumn when they're supposed to be bearing fruit, but actually they have been pulled up by the roots. And so this good-looking tree is laying on its side. It hasn't produced any fruit, and it won't produce any fruit because it has, it has been uprooted. And it reminds us of Matthew uh, chapter 21 when Jesus curses a fig tree. This is one of the strangest uh, miracles that is performed in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus walks by a fig tree and it's not producing fruit and, uh, and he curses it and then the uh, fig tree withers um, and the disciples see it the next day. The point is that Jesus is not just walking around cursing, uh, cursing trees and, and showing his divinity that way. He's trying to teach his disciples something about uh, the leaders of Israel. They're supposed to be bearing fruit for the Lord but instead, um, they are actually in opposition to Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so we see there a picture of what, a, what one of these trees looks like that has been uprooted. So they're supposed to be producing, and yet they're not. Um, they are producing nothing of the Spirit. 
Number seven, the seventh thing we see about false teachers is that they ignore spiritual authority and order. Verse 13 calls them wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Now we need to understand again something about the world in which the, the Bible was written. Um, the, the ocean or the sea was, th- was really a mysterious place. You couldn't see the bottom of it. You didn't know what was down there. Uh, and it was a chaotic place. Storms could whip, it up, whip up very quickly and destroy uh, your boat if you're out there in the middle of the water. It could destroy uh, you and whoever was on board. It could destroy the boat, which was probably a life's savings. Uh, and so um, a wild wave of the sea is the image that Jude is using here to describe uh, these people. It could turn on you and destroy you in a matter of minutes. And it reminds me of Isaiah 57, uh, verse 20. It says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And so it's ignoring, these people are ignoring spiritual authority, and they're ignoring the order that God has created within his church. They are wild and crazy. They are doing things um, that are outside of the bounds of what God would have them do. They are sinning. Um, The eighth thing that we see about false teachers here in our passage is that they provide disastrous direction. They provide disastrous direction. Look at verse 12 again. Jude, in this last image, calls them wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So the Greek word here for wandering stars is is the word that we get um, the word planet from. If you've been to a planetarium, you know all about uh, planets. This is, this is that same Greek word, the idea of a, a wandering star, a star that seems to go in a direction um, that, that runs counter to the way it should. And people used to use stars to provide direction for them all throughout the year. So if you had a wandering star that was going in a different direction and you were following that, you could end up lost in a place where you did not mean to be. And that would be a disaster for you. So Jude uses this image of a wandering star, and he says that these wandering stars are going to be consigned to darkness, just like those angels back in uh, verse 6 that we looked at last week. There's going to be judgment for these wandering stars. And so judgment is exactly what Jude talks about and elaborates on next, the next two verses. Verses 14 and 15. And these are a quotation um, from Enoch. We talked about Um, We talked about the book of Enoch a little bit last week, so uh, I'm not going to review all of that material. If you want to see that, you can tune in to the the website or uh, look on our podcast, and and we'll have that up for you. Um, But it says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so Jude is using this quotation for the book of Enoch to talk about what is going to happen um, to, these, uh, to these false teachers, um, not only in the long run, but perhaps that they're going to be judged soon. And so he says um, that the Lord is going to bring a myriad of his holy ones, and this is, these are ten thousands, Uh, of holy ones, and these are probably angels, as a crowd to observe his judgments, because God doesn't need any help um, judging 
people or angels. He, judges, he can judge them with the breath of his mouth, Revelation says. Uh, Jesus is really so powerful. He doesn't need an angelic posse uh, in order to help him in any way. So we know what's going on there. Um, let's read Acts chapter 10, verse 42, real quickly about Jesus and judgment. Peter is speaking here and he says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So this passage talks to us about Jesus and his role in the final judgment. Now it's interesting that in, in our society, people have this idea when they, when they hear about the Bible, they, hear, they think that in the Old Testament, God is, is harsh. You know, and God is the one who rains down fire on people and all of that sort of thing. And yet in the New Testament, um, Jesus just sits around and tickles lambs on their belly. You know, like that's the, that's the idea that you get, you know, as, as, you, as you kind of hear people talk about what's Jesus like. Um, but we get a very different picture of Jesus in the New Testament uh, when we hear about judgment. And it says that God is going to use Jesus. Jesus is going to be uh, the one who actually judges people at the end of all things. Jesus will be the one who is judging nations, and he will be laying forth the secrets of people's hearts. He's going to be exposing everyone for the things that they have done, and then pronouncing a final judgment on them. And so Jude is telling his hearers, these people are not going to get away with anything. They act like nothing, nothing ever is going to happen to them, but Jude is saying, look, there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a wake-up call when uh, these people are judged, and you need to be far away from their tents when it happens. So distance yourselves from these false teachers. Now, he's going to do uh, more characteristics of false teachers for us here in this last verse. In verse 16, he says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So the ninth thing that false teachers are shown to do in this passage in Jude is that they undermine authority by complaining. Jude uses, uses the word grumblers here. Now, grumblers, you've probably been around some. If you haven't been a grumbler yourself, this is what grumblers do. Grumblers are always speaking under their breath so that the person that they're grumbling against doesn't hear what they have to say. Now, as a, a former school teacher, I know what this is like, right? I'll give an assignment, and I'll hear some going on through, through various corners of the room, right? Um, and so that's, those are grumblers. They're, they're at work out there, and they're undermining what, what I'm trying to say as, as a teacher. And if I ask them what they're saying, they'll just be like, oh, I'm nothing. We were just talking about recipes or something, right? Um, um, but grumblers are always grumbling against someone in the presence of others, in order to gain support uh, and turn uh, this group of people that is around them against the person who is speaking, the person who is in authority. So that's what these grumblers are doing. They are grumbling about uh, God and, and, the, and the boundaries that he has clearly set for his people, and they're trying to turn people against, against the Lord, saying, you know what, those people are just dinosaurs, right? I mean, their, their way of thinking about morality is just so old-fashioned, you know, and this is the kind of thing that they are grumbling about uh, to the people around them. And they are grumbling, not, not just against the church leaders, but they are grumbling against the Lord. And the thing is that God hears the grumbling. I may not be able to hear people grumbling. If, you got, if you're out there grumbling today as I'm talking, I'm not going to be able to hear you, but the Lord hears. 
and the Lord knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. We see this all through the Gospels, don't we? Jesus will be preaching and teaching, and the Pharisees will be sitting there over there going, grumbling about something. And Jesus will call out exactly what they were saying, whether it's in their hearts or whether it was coming out of their mouths. Um, he, he talks to them about exactly uh, what was happening. And so he displays this knowledge, this understanding of what's happening with the grumblers. And he calls them out. He's saying, look, those, those, that grumbling is not remaining a secret. You are challenging uh, the Lord's authority. The second thing that we see in verse 16, uh, and really the, the tenth thing overall, is that they are never content. Now, in my, in my reading, I ran across this guy named Theophrastus. Do you have any Theophrastus fans out there? Me neither. I had no idea who he was. But, but he is a, a thinker who studied under Plato. Probably have heard of Plato before. And, uh, and so he writes about this, this, uh, this group of people called malcontents. All right? And he had this, this great riff that he went on. And I, I'm just going to quote it for you. And he calls malcontents uh, people who are querulous. All right? So when I use that word, you'll know what I'm saying. Querulousness, he says, is an undue complaining about one's lot. The querulous man will say to him that brings him a portion from a friend's table, you begrudge me your soup or your collops, or you would have asked me to dine with you in person. All right, so you bring a person a meal, and they're like, that's just because you didn't want to eat with me. All right, you're you're kind enough to bring them a meal, and they're complaining about it. He says he's displeased with Zeus, not because he sends no rain, but because he's been so long about sending it. Right, So they're throwing up their hands and going, finally, at last, you've sent us rain. Good grief. Why'd you keep us waiting for so long? When he finds a purse in the street, it is, ah, but I never found a treasure. It's like, well, I found five bucks in the street. I never found a hundred. Never, never happened to me. Right? He's complaining about this. When he has bought a slave cheap without much importuning the seller, he cries, I wonder if my bargain's too cheap to be good. So he, he drives a really good bargain. Then he's like, you know what? It's probably not worth anything anyway. Should this man win a suit at law by a unanimous verdict, he is sure to find fault with his speechwriter for omitting so many of the pleas. He's going, you know what, the only reason I won is because my lawyer didn't do a, a very good job at talking about all the things I was complaining about. And if it's a, a subscription, this is like a GoFundMe page, uh, that has been got up for him among his friends, and one of them says to him, you can cheer up now, he will say, What? When I must repay each man his share and be beholden to him in the bargain? It's like, man, now, I, now I've gotta, I'm beholden to all these people. These, you know, these guys have, have got one up on me. I'm going to have to repay them back eventually. He's complaining about that. So a malcontent is never satisfied with anything. In contrast, a content person, which is what God wants us to be, is thankful to God for what they have. Even if they are struggling towards something that is good, like spiritual maturity, Instead of grumbling about what they don't have, they are thankful for how far the Lord has brought them. So that is what, that's what God wants us to be. These guys are malcontents. They are never satisfied. They are never content. Last one, the 11th one uh, characteristic we see here is that they make everything about them. Look how Jude describes them. He says, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So these are the guys who make the headlines, they stoke the controversy, they're all over uh, the Twitterverse, and they are full of pride. They're making everything about them. And one of the ways that they make everything about them and that they gain favor for themselves is that they, sh- they themselves show favoritism to gain advantage. 
So they find someone that has something that they want, whether it's money or influence or a particular ability, and then they begin to flatter them, to try to get them on their side, to try to get them to help them in some way. They're showing favoritism. They're buttering them up in some way, and they single them out for special treatment. Now, it's interesting, this word in the Greek is, is uh, the same word that we use for face. So it's this idea that they, you turn your face towards that person in order to show favoritism. Uh, we see this idea really in the Old Testament a lot when, uh, when we're asking God to turn his face towards us, to bless us, to show us favor. Well, this is the same idea that these people are doing. They are singling people out for what they can get from them, and they're showing favoritism uh, to them in order to gain an advantage in some ways. So we've talked a lot about false teachers and how to recognize them. Hopefully you've got a page full of notes. You can think about those things. But I want to turn the corner here. And instead of just talking a bit this morning about recognizing and rejecting false teachers, we need to also talk about the positive. We need to talk about Jesus and how to rely on the reality that's found in Christ how to rely on the reality that's found in Christ. So, what I want to do is walk quickly back through this passage and look at the various ways in which these false teachers fall short, but Jesus excels, and he shows himself to be Lord of all. So, instead of destroying the innocent like Cain, Jesus redeems the guilty from the bondage of sin. Instead of destroying the innocent, Jesus redeems the guilty from the bondage of sin. The second thing, instead of selling out God's people like Balaam did, Jesus loved them more than his own life, and he gave him his own life for the sake of his people. Instead of leading a rebellion like Korah, Jesus leads his people in humble obedience to the Lord. Instead of being like that hidden reef that we talked about that would shipwreck our lives, Jesus then is the rock that we can cling to when the storms of life assail us. Instead of being a shepherd that feeds on the sheep, Jesus is the good shepherd who does what? Lays down his life for the sake of the sheep. Instead of being like a rainless cloud or an uprooted fruit tree that never delivers on its promise, Jesus gives us certain promises, things that we can take to the bank. When he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age, we know that that will happen because he sealed those promises in his own blood. He guarantees it with his own blood. Instead of ignoring God's order like a wild wave, we see in Jesus' earthly ministry that he upholds the Father's every command. Look at John 14, 31 with me. Jesus says this, he says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He demonstrates utter and absolute obedience to the Father. Next, instead of misleading us like a wandering star, Jesus becomes the only way to the Father and no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus becomes that way for us to know God He's never a wandering star. He never leads us off course. He always takes us straight towards the Lord. Jesus, instead of being a grumbler and a malcontent, he tells the Father, not my will, 
but yours be done. He is perfectly satisfied with the will of the Father in everything in his, in his earthly ministry. Lastly, instead of pridefully exalting himself, Jesus humbles himself and he lets God exalt him. My wife said, I, I quote this scripture about once every other sermon, but I think if you've got to quote one, this is a good one. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 <clears throat> says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't an amazing thing about Jesus that even though he deserves all praise and honor and worship, that he would humble himself not only by coming to earth, but by humbling himself, by dying, by taking on uh, our death and our sin and allowing those things to, to weigh on him and, and destroy his life. And yet Jesus rose from the grave and God um, exalts him to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So this is the way in which Jesus is exalted. It's not the way that the false teachers do it to exalt themselves. Now, if we're honest, we'll recognize as we read through this passage that we share some of the same characteristics that the false teachers have, right? We often exalt ourselves. We are full of pride. We say, you know what? The world should revolve around me. We would never say that with our mouths. But with our actions and with the things that anger us, we demonstrate that we really do think that. Everything should go my way instead of everything should go with the way that God has determine that it should go in, his, in the way that he is running the universe. We rebel against God. We rebel against his authority by doing things our own way instead of following him in our hearts, in our, from our mouths, in, in our actions. And we also grumble. We complain and we are not content with God. We are, we are displaying the same um, discontent that Karah did in the wilderness and saying, we're not content with what you have given us. We deserve more. We have hearts that are filled with unbelief as a result. So as you read that and you think about these things, it undoes you, right? It undoes, it undoes me when I think about this and allow the scripture to, to kind of pick me apart and show me all of the ways in which I fall short. But I also have the gospel and this is that when we place our faith in Jesus, Jesus gives us his perfect record of righteousness. Isn't that good news? When we, um, when we turn away from the Lord, instead of giving us what we deserve, he gives us grace and mercy. Look at Romans 4, verse 5 with me. It says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So imagine that there was someone who has worked all of their life on a business and they've grown that business from nothing up into a multi-million dollar company. And they just sign that, um, the, all of the profits from that business over to you. 
for you to inherit and get to use for the rest of your life. Even though you had no part in the business, you didn't work for this person, you didn't do anything for them, you just received the benefits of that. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has counted his righteousness to us. He has dumped all of his righteousness into our spiritual bank account, even though we have turned against him. Now, this sets us free in at least two different ways. It brings freedom into our lives. The first thing it sets us free from is trying to earn our salvation. A lot of us do this. Uh, We try to, even after we have been saved, we are trying to earn the righteousness that God has given to us uh, by trying to um, by trying to do things perfectly, trying to be acceptable before God and for others. Uh, but the good news is that we are free from being a prisoner to the law, having to perform perfectly in order to be accepted by God. Um, so, so we can walk out of this prison that the law has created from us. We are free from trying to earn our salvation. The second thing that the gospel sets us free from is slavery to sin itself. Now, this is where the false teachers come in. The false teachers give themselves over to sin and continue to justify their behavior. The good news of the gospel says that we don't have to sin anymore, that we're no longer a prisoner. Uh, Can you imagine someone who is released from prison hanging onto their prison jumpsuit and wearing it every day? Man, that would be the first thing I would change if I, if I get out of prison, right? It's like, I, would, I am not wearing that thing anymore. I do not want to be identified with that old way of life at all. I want to have a new life. I want to live a life of freedom. And yet that's exactly what the false teachers are saying is, look, you are free to get back into the orange jumpsuit, live like a prisoner again. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live as a prisoner to my sin anymore. So when someone excuses their sin by saying, I'm saved by grace, get out of my face, then I know that they really don't understand the message of the gospel. Because you have to ask yourself, if you're in that situation, what have you been saved from? If you're continuing in sin and you're enjoying your sin and you are delighting in your sin and you're saying it's okay, what have you been saved from? What's changed from your prison life to your new life? Because it seems like you're eating like a prisoner, dressing like a prisoner, acting like a prisoner all of the time. You seem like you're still a captive to your sin. What have you been saved from if you say you're saved by grace? Grace helps us instead to recognize these two things. The counterfeit of saved by grace so I can sin all I want antinomianism. And it also saved us, saves us from legalistic, performance-based grubbing for righteousness. Jude teaches us through this passage this morning that we can reject the counterfeits and rely on Christ instead. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the powerful truths in this word today. Lord, how it helps us to identify these various aspects of false teachers. Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize those in the church world around us. Lord, that we would see them for what they are and that we would instead Uh, receive you and to rely on on you instead. Help us to attach ourselves to your word uh, and, Lord, to walk in its truth and its counsels. God, we pray that you would set us free uh, through the gospel, uh, Lord, to walk in the freedom that you've purchased from us, that we wouldn't walk in legalistic self-righteousness and we also wouldn't walk in antinomianism, Lord, just disregarding your commands. Help us to live as a free people, Lord, that's truly free in their hearts 
and in their actions. In Jesus' name, amen.